life ever make you feel small? When I was a boy, like almost every little boy I've ever met, I liked to wear capes because I wanted to feel big. And I imagined that I could push my dad's car down the street or in my better days, pick it up over my head and throw it. That was one of my mom's, uh, one of my mom's tablecloths that I'd fashioned into a cape. I didn't realize back then I was in danger of choking myself. They have these had this good idea to have breakaway capes now, but back then I took a tablecloth and did the best I could because I wanted to feel big, but, but I'm not. I'm like you. I'm, I'm small, and life has a way of making you feel that way. Disease comes crashing in. The doctor gives you bad news. Bosses, sometimes completely disconnected from reality, pass you over for promotion or tell you simply that you won't be working there anymore. This week I, I heard of a guy who found out in two minutes with no warning that his job was done and that in fact he should be packed and there should be no trace of uh, that he had ever been with that company by the end of the day. He had about three hours to get his life together. And life has a way of battering you around and, and taking away that little boy, little girl dream that you're big and you're in control and you can choose your own path. That's how many people felt in the latter portion of Israel's history that we're diving into today. Last week, we saw how a courageous group of some 50,000 people returned from Persia to the Promised Land, and they built an altar. And then they got comfortable in their own houses, but God sent them the the prophet Haggai who said, stop putting me in second place. When I'm in second place, you lose. And they were stirred up to give and to work again. And the temple, the foundation for the temple was laid. And worship in the land was beginning to be reestablished. But all the while, there were a whole other group of people, the majority of God's people, who were still in Persia. And every day of their lives, they had a thousand reasons to remember that they, in a big life and in a big empire, were actually quite small. The remnant is back in the land and worship is ringing out again from God's house where he has promised to build a witness to all nations. But make no mistake, though God has moved in the heart of the Persian king to send a remnant back to reestablish worship, Persia is still very much in control. And that's what the book of Esther tells us. If you look in the first third of your Old Testament, please find the book of Esther and understand this is not in chronological order in the order the Bible books appear in your printed copy of it. The book of Esther tells you the story of what was happening back in Persia while the remnant reestablished worship. If you'll look with me, we're going to move, believe it or not, through the entire book of Esther and see what God can do in the lives of people who are very small, so small, in fact, that they don't control their own schedule, they don't control their own decisions. In the book of Esther, we're told that we are in the days, chapter 1, verse 1, of, the, of King Ahasuerus who reigned, watch this, from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. From India to the Mediterranean Sea, from the Mediterranean to Africa, this man was in charge. 
to show his magnificence. The book of Esther tells us he threw a party that lasted 180 days. Now, I don't know if there was continual partying for six months or they punctuated it with lavish celebrations, but everything in this story tells me that this is magnificence and splendor and money and indulgence and hedonism like the world has never seen. Everyone was invited, and the last, this six-month celebration culminated with a a week-long celebration where everyone in the capital was invited to come, and they were told something that hardly anybody can afford, no matter how big the occasion is. The king invited everyone and said, everyone, drink as much as you want. I'm going to relax the royal custom that you have to drink when I drink. You guys just drink. And the book says that golden... Golden cups and chalices and goblets were brought out, each one different from the other. There was so much money and so much power in this man's hands. And well drunk and wanting to show off, the most important and most powerful and one of the most foolish, wicked men in the world said, bring the queen out. I want to show off the queen Have her put on a royal crown and come out and walk around in front of my guests. She's beautiful, and I want every man here to see it. Now, can you imagine this atmosphere? They've been drinking for a week. This is a seedy, sordid affair. This is not any mother's dream for her daughter. And the queen is beckoned to come, and the queen does something unheard of and very courageous. Do you know what she did? She said, I won't come. She's having her own party with the women. And they come to get her and she says, no, I won't. And this is a culture in which this king simply decrees what is to be and it's immediately done. And in fact, according to their custom, laws cannot even be erased. If you want to change anything, you have to write a new law. This man is as close to God on earth as any man ever has been. And his queen won't come, and he holds, he holds a quick meeting in his anger with his cabinet, and he says, boys, what do we do? And they said, king, deal with this harshly, or every woman in the whole empire is going to start standing up to her husband. <laughs> and that's going to be bad for everybody. You need to make sure that these people are put in their place. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to get rid of her, and you're going to get yourself a new queen. And he thinks this is a magnificent idea. If you, don't, if, if you think I'm making this up, look in Esther chapter 1, verse 19. If it, please, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti, that's the queen, is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. You see the irony in that? It's going to be hard to find better. She's a principled woman. She has some dignity. What he means is do something, a woman who will do what she's told. So when the, king, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Here's something surprising. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan, that's his advisor, proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. 
Boys, you're in charge. It's the law. Ridiculous. Absurd. But in a nation of small people who have been made to feel utterly powerless by life and the forces and the wickedness arrayed around them and against them, God is at work because there's an orphan girl who lives in this kingdom. She has been given the Persian name of Esther. She has no mom and dad. She has been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. It says in 2 verse 7, he, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And her beauty was well known. And it says in verse 8, when the king's orders and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who, was, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. What's going on here? The king is rebuilding his harem. He's deposed one queen now from every beautiful girl that can be found in his vast empire. He says, bring them to me. And he has a person in charge of their beauty preparations. If you read the story, do you remember how long it took to get them primed and ready? A year. A year of spa treatments. A year of beautification. Everything in this story is focused on wicked values. The king had a dignified woman in his court. He didn't care. He ran her off. And now there's a little orphaned Jewish girl who has adopted a Persian name. And not only that, we're explicitly told in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. You see his desperation? For all intents and purposes, that's his little girl inside this wicked harem. She's a child of God. Covenant promises have been made to her, but nobody would know it. On this day, at least, she's certainly not acting like it. We have no idea what her reaction was when she was summoned into this beauty pageant, and that's the point. It doesn't matter. She has no choice. She's been pushed around by a very big life and by very wicked, inconsiderate people, and the best Mordecai can do is tell her, don't tell them who you are. Play nice. Be good. Remember, life is cheap here. These are people who deal with their enemies by impaling them. It was this culture that gave us the original idea for things like crucifixion. Life is cheap in Persia. Life is cheap in Persia if you're not the king. Life's especially cheap in Persia if you're a Jew. So the orphan girl goes along and keeps quiet and apparently grows even more beautiful. And the best Mordecai can do is hang around and hope to hear from the window far from the king's presence how it's going for Esther. 
In verse 16, we're told when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And the little orphan girl has a promotion now. But her identity is still secret. She does not speak God's name. She doesn't know it, but she's enjoying his promises. But it's not clear at all to me that she even knows it or appreciates that God is actually at work. A big God is at work in the lives of little people. And Mordecai's still doing the best he can. You know, sometimes the best you can do is all you can do. And he's hanging around the gate. He's not welcome inside. He's not summoned. You're going to find out in just a minute that nobody went to see the king, not even his queen, unless they were ordered to do so, unless they were invited. And Mordecai's not. He's hanging out at the gate. And at the gate, he hears two of the king's officials plotting. And they're saying, we're tired of this king. They're plotting his demise They're actually plotting his death. It says in verse 21, men who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And what that likely means is they were impaled on a stake. Bad way to go. What's the point of the public execution? Same reason they killed Jesus in public later, the Romans. Public shame, public terror, this is what happens if you raise your voice, much less your hand, against our king. So Mordecai has discovered a plot. And a small man with no real allegiance to the king has done a humane thing and uncovered a murder plot and save the king's life through his strategically positioned little cousin who's now queen. In chapter 3, we're told that the king then promotes one of his officials and puts them high above all the rest. Chapter 3. Verse 1 says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Can I tell you something? That was foolish. We're not sure why he's doing this. Perhaps it was his ancestry. Perhaps Mordecai recognizes him as kin of an enemy that Israel has had for a very long time. But Mordecai strikes me at least as foolish, if not prideful. He is not living in any respect as someone filled with faith. He's told his cousin, don't tell them who you are for goodness sakes. Just a little Jewish girl in Persia. You're cute, but you're not that cute. He got rid of Vashti in one moment. He'll get rid of you too. Play it cool. Go along, fit in. Now Mordecai, of all people, decides that he's going to make a stand. 
And the second most important man in the kingdom has been told by the royal decree, when you see him, everybody everybody bow the head. This is royal protocol. This is not worship. And Mordecai won't do it. How do you think Haman reacted based on what I've already told you about this imperial culture? Probably wrote a stern letter, right? There's this guy who won't tip, won't tip the head. No. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Here's trouble. Sometimes trouble, deadly trouble, can be expressed in just a few words. Laid off, cancer, missing, lost, burned. Sometimes just a few words can tell you of a whole world of trouble, and this is one of those times. Verse 6 tells you of a world of trouble. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai. You know, the most amazing thing, verse 4 tells me, that Mordecai has told people he's a Jew. This makes absolutely no sense. He's taken the wise measure to tell Esther to play it cool, and he's parading up and down around the street, apparently telling everybody whose people he belongs to. And Haman says, wait a second. A guy who hangs out at the gate won't bow down? A Jew who hangs out at the gate won't bow down? I'll kill him. But I'm too big of a man. I'm too important. If I just kill him, that'll be a small thing. That'll look petty. I know what I'll do. I'll kill them all. And genocide is plotted. One of the most extraordinary things about the history of Israel is how many different people have tried to wipe them from the face of the earth in their long history. A Jewish guide in Israel a few years ago explained to all the Jewish feasts to us in this way. They tried to kill us, they couldn't, let's eat. (laughs) You think about that as you walk through the Jewish calendar, you'll see that there's a lot to it. But this looks, this looks very, very bad. And Haman is a man of faith. He begins casting lots. In the first month of the year, it was the royal custom to cast lots, believing in astrology and spiritual forces that they could not see that the gods would direct the lots and tell them what to do and when to do it. So Haman began casting lots for the fate of people of no importance who are the remnant, who are the survivors in a land that is not their own where they have adopted names and language and culture and now he's casting lots, he's seeking divine guidance to kill them all. And he started rolling the dice, literally. In Persian, he started rolling the pur, P-U-R. What do the gods want? When should I exterminate every living Jew in this kingdom? Where should they, when should I say that the entire kingdom should be searched? They should be rounded off and systematically slaughtered. And the, and the dice told them about 11 months from now, that's when you kill them. Ironically, as he rolled the dice for their faith, they were celebrating the Passover, remembering a time that they had escaped another empire that had once tried to kill them. 
And Mordecai finds out about it. And he can't have a face-to-face conversation with Esther. He has to tell her in writing, remember, because he's back at the gate. He can't see the queen. She is protected. She is precious and important, at least for as long as he wants her to be, to one man. And he says to her in chapter 4, Esther, they'll kill us all. Verse 8. Mordecai had also given, also gave him a servant, a messenger, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. You see, the king's done something stupid. Haman's gone to him and said, King, there are people among us who pay you no respect. They don't follow your rules. Their laws are different from other people's. It's not to your profit. It doesn't contribute to your glory and to your empire's safety to keep them around. And King, I so want your kingdom to be unified. I'll pay tons of gold into the treasury if you'll give me the authority to get rid of them. And apparently, the king, without even knowing who he's talking about, says, do it. Kill them. This is how cheap life is in Persia. This is how big life is when it's stacked against these little Jews. And now it's written. And it can't be undone. And the letters going into the king, going into Queen Esther... Verse 10, it says, Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. Can you guess what it is? To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. That's bad news. In the king's opinion, this is the most beautiful woman in the whole kingdom, and he hasn't seen her in how long? I don't know how your marriage works, but if I take it upon myself to avoid my wife for 30 days, we'll need law enforcement, uh, probably. (laughs) Keep me safe. Never mind the lawyers. Bring security first, and then... Then possibly counselors and crisis intervention people. There may be a thaw here. Or rather, these relations may be, may be chilling. He hasn't seen her in 30 days. He hasn't found the time. He's been too busy. What's the king been doing? Absolutely no. Telling this is a man who throws six-month parties. There's an absolutely decent chance he's been drunk for a month. This is a man who publicly gets rid of a queen in front of a drunken mob. This is, this is someone who puts people to death by hanging them on poles. And Esther says, Mordecai, you know how it is here. Nobody goes to see the king. People are summoned to see the king. If anybody goes to see the king, here's the custom. We have our face down, and he raises the scepter. He might have literally put that rod under their chin and lifted their face up, saying, it's okay to speak to me now. 
This is how cruel imperial power in the ancient world is. And the queen herself does not dare to go. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. That's pressure. That's not nice. This isn't a sweet exchange. They'll kill you too, honey. Don't forget where you're from. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now that's the phrase that everybody knows if they've read the book of Esther. May I point your attention to the most important part of it in my opinion? Trying to stand in that dust and hear this story. What did he say for what? Who knows? Everybody focuses on this, such a time as this. That's not the operative part. The operative part is who knows? It might work. We're small people being pushed around by big forces and random coincidences and cruel people. Who knows, Esther? This might be your time. I'll tell you one thing. If you don't act, you'll die with the rest of us. If you do, (laughs) who knows? This might be your time. This might be the reason you're in the royal palace. And Esther says, okay, fine. Gather everybody and fast for three days. Don't eat, don't drink for three days. Plead for me. And she prepares a banquet. She does a very, very, very courageous thing. On the third day, Esther, chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. In other words, she stood quietly with her head down, doubtless where she could see him. And ladies, if you would have been there, your legs certainly would have been trembling because you know that the next thing you might hear might be your death sentence. He's just that impetuous. He's that cruel. He's that impulsive. And most of all, he's that powerful. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even half the kingdom. And she makes a very small request. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther had asked. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is her time, right? What does she ask for? Look in the next few verses. She said, come back tomorrow. And I wondered even this morning, what happened there? He said twice half the kingdom. But she knows something about kings. Those are grand gestures of power. He very likely doesn't mean it. She opposes his second in command. She could end up just like Vashti. (laughs) 
So she says, come back tomorrow. And I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if at that point her courage failed. You ever have the words stick in your throat? You know the right thing to do, but you say it's not a good time? It's a good thing, not a good time. I've been putting things off for 10, 12 years because it's the good thing, but it's not the good time. Sometimes talking to people about Jesus is like that. Have you noticed? It's a good thing. I'm not sure about the time. And you just keep putting things off. So they say, come back. I'll have a bigger, better banquet. And Haman goes home and says to his wife and friends, you'll never believe what happened, man. It's my day. I've just come from a banquet with the king and the queen, and I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm the only one they want. Verse 12, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited her by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is genocidal, irrational, completely insane. Now, this is diabolical hatred. This is the serpent's hiss that has stood against every one of God's good promises against his people, and they are quite definitely in one of the worst spots of their lives. He says, my, my life's good. I'm the fair-haired boy in all the land, but it means nothing to me as long as I see that Jew hanging out around the gate. And his wife, of all people, says, you know what? Build yourself a 75-foot gallows. You've got the pull. You've got the juice in the kingdom. Run him through on a stake and put it 75 feet up so that everyone in this capital will see a man's corpse dangling from that pole and know how powerful you are, honey. And he says, great idea. And they go to the banquet the next day. This is the second banquet now. But before he goes to the banquet... The next day, the king, even the king, has to do a very human thing. What do you do between dinner and the next day? You sleep, right? I do. There's a saying in Mexico, I wake up and I'm so hungry and then I eat and I get so sleepy. <laughs> even King Ahasuerus, even this great man needs sleep. And he's had a kingly meal. He should be wiped out. He should be already asleep. Because have you picked up that he likes drinking? And drinking is what this guy lives for. And remember, he rules over the ancient world. The wine in the kingdom is perhaps the best the world to this point has ever seen. And he's had more than his share. And alcohol has this funny effect on people. It makes them sleepy, but not tonight. The king can't sleep. It's an annoying thing, really. And the king does something that I do sometimes when I can't sleep. He says, bring me some historical records and read them to me. Well, I don't have anybody to read to me. My wife would think I'm insane. <laughs> but I'll read myself on a paper book in very dim light, not on the Kindle because that would keep me awake, but I'll set everything up real quiet. Now, I won't read anything interesting. I won't read anything I care about. Give me something pretty dull and I'll sleep. And the king wants a recounting of good moments, notable moments in his kingdom. 
Even now, his pride is with him. Tell me about the good old days I've presided over. And they start reading to him, and they read to him something that happened five years earlier. They remind him that a Jew sitting on the street once saved his life. And he says, hey, what do we ever do for that guy? Any kind of royal compensation for saving my fat, drunken little life? He didn't say that, made that up. And they said, well, okay, according to the record, you haven't done anything for him. Well, that's, that's pretty amazing, don't you think? This is a guy who invites the whole town to drink as much as they want. Don't you think he would have sent a check or at least a nice card to uh, Target gift card, something for the man who saved his life? No, he overlooked it. It's another one of these funny coincidences. It's another one of these inexplicable little details like the Jew sitting on the street at just the right time, overhearing men plotting their ruler's death within his earshot. I mean, how does that happen? A drunken king getting rid of a perfectly good queen? A little orphan girl being summoned, first of all, into the beauty pageant and then winning it? Now here's another little strange turn in our story. Nothing has been done for a man who once saved the king's life. And just then, just then, by sheer coincidence, they say, hey, Haman's here to see you. Actually, the king says, who, who's outside? Because nobody dares to come in unbidden. And they said, Haman, he said, perfect, bring him in. And the king says, Haman, what should be done for a man who the king desires to honor? Verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose hand a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, who does Haman think is about to get this honor? himself because he's banquet boy remember he's the only one that comes to all the banquets I mean the banquet is that very day man the king's really pouring it on thick and Haman says you know what I'm all in I'm going to ask for every trapping of royalty give me the horse give me the crown give me the robes and put a guy in front of me saying thus shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor I mean, it's a big day you ever had a day like this? Me neither. <laughs> and the king says, verse 10, the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Oh man, it's bitter. And the guy at the gate is robed by hands that hate him. And a crown is ever so placed, so gently placed on his head when Haman's hands would really actually go just about a foot lower and get around his neck and strangle him in the street. But this is the king's command. There's nothing he can do about it. 
And the guy who sat on the street hoping to hear good news about his orphaned cousin who somehow happens to be queen, he is looking around in wide-eyed wonder. Life can make you awfully feel awfully small, and it sure does take some strange turns. And he goes home, and he says, family, the worst thing has just happened to me. And they say, you know what? If this has begun to happen to you in the presence of this Jew, you won't be able to stand against him. These are pagan, wicked people, but they can see that all these coincidences, all these strange occurrences, all these random decisions, all this unguided weirdness is all pointing somewhere, and it's not good for them. Then they come and take him to the banquet, and he's sick to his stomach. In the middle of that banquet, chapter 7, verse 2, on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And the king says, who did this? And Esther says, Haman the wicked man standing beside you. And just then, the king knows he's been had. He's put a law in motion that would kill his own king and annihilate the man, along with many thousands of others who has actually saved his life, and he storms out in anger. Now, if you're Haman, what are you going to do? It's no good to run. Life's cheap. He knows the king means him harm. His only hope is to beg the queen. And it's the funniest thing. He gets up and apparently stumbles in weakness and fear in begging and falls on Esther just as the king comes back in in his anger. And he says, you'll rape my wife in my own house? Kill him. Do you know where Haman ended up? He suffered the death he had planned for Mordecai. And a new law was written, and it ran, horses speeding with the urgency of the king's command, giving the Jews permission to defend themselves. In the next few days, war was fought. And 75,000 people who would like the Jews to be dead perished instead. Haman's ten sons were all killed ceremonially as a reminder that sometimes, no matter how big life gets and how contrary it is against you, sometimes evil doesn't win. And in this entire book, if you read it carefully, God has not once been mentioned. Small people are being pushed around by seemingly cruel, arbitrary, capricious, entirely wicked forces. Can I tell you, friends, it's not true? God is not mentioned, but he is in control over every single thing in this book. You ever see a little child lose sight of his mother in panic in one instant? 
Suddenly the child looks around, his mother's not there. Ah, I'm right here, honey. Oh, there you are. She's right behind him preparing his food. He was just so engrossed in the TV set, he forgot where his mother was. Sometimes that's what we're like. In all the, all the flow and ebb and cruelty and big forces that come crashing against us in life, all too often we lose sight of God. And sometimes, like Esther, we feel entirely too small to speak up and to identify. All too often, we're content to run undercover, even though we know that we are also people of covenant. We are also people to whom promises have been made. Why is the book of Esther in the Bible? Why is this story here if it never even so much as mentions the name of God one time? So that God's people would know this. We can live courageously because God is always in control. From that day to this, the book of Esther tells us the Jews have celebrated a feast. Every year in March, a feast that is called simply dice or lots is celebrated. And for centuries now, for millennia really, people have remembered that God who controls dice and people, who controls men sitting on street corners, and murderous men who plot against their king, who controls even drunken kings and all of their wicked desires, who is able to put weak-willed, fearful little orphans into the royal court who live far from their identity for a time until finally they remember who they are and they step forward in one grand moment of courage. God is in control of all of them and all of us. And we live in a culture, as I told you two weeks ago, where there is more and more pushing against us, telling us to live in fear, to go undercover, to not speak up, to try to get along, to not trust God's promises, and above all, to not trust his control because life is simply too big. Our enemies are too strong. The things coming against us are just too big for us. None of it is true. You can live with courage because God is always in control. He made promises to these people, not just to the ones in worship back in the capital. He made promises to all of his people. He said he would preserve them and they would be his people. And not too long from now, in God's timing at least, from this embattled, often persecuted, nearly slaughtered nation, a son will be born. His name is Jesus. And he will be the Savior of the whole world, not just from India to Africa. His love, his promise will be extended to all the nations. And if you're following Jesus, you're with him. He belongs to you. So please, literally, for the love of God, live with courage because God is always in control. Can you pray with me now, please? Hey, what is it in life that's been making you feel very, very small? been pushing you around? Forces far above you, people much bigger than you are, made you feel small? Things that are not personal at all but are affecting your life that are crashing against you that make you feel utterly powerless? That may be the point. You are powerless. But listen, you have a great, loving, faithful God who is always in control. 
In the entire book of Esther, there wasn't one coincidence. God was in control the whole time. That's as true today as it was then. It always will be. So may I invite you to bring all your burdens and fears. If you've been resenting God, if you've been afraid of God because he seems to have stepped away and is doing nothing now for you, would you please come to him and say, God, I can't even trace out all the all the events and all the turns in the road, but I recognize, I want to remember today that you're in control and I want to trust you. With my family, my money, my career, my health, my housing, my income, reconciliation among family members, all the things in life that can make you hurt and feel like you have no control. You're right, you don't have control, but God does, so you can live with courage. Lord, give us now a moment with you Turn those burdens over to you and rest in your control. Tell him about it. Turn it over to him. Look past your circumstances. Look beyond yourself. Look to the God who calls the shots. The God with whom there are no coincidences. Turns the evil casting of lots to exterminate his people and gives them a feast instead to remember all their days that he was faithful and that he saves. Lord, as we move and leap forward many, many years to remember the death of your son on the cross, help us, Lord, to do so mindful that you controlled all of history to bring Jesus to the cross, bring him out of the grave, empty the tomb, so that we may be saved. I thank you for this and ask God that because of everything you've done for little people like us, we would live with courage knowing that you are always in control. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.